When was the last time you had a good conversation about something you love over drinks? Coffee, tea, or at the bar, I've had some of my best conversations about music while sharing a beverage with a friend. In this series, members of the Adjective New Music Composers Collective sit down to discuss pieces and composers we love over drinks. Well, hi guys. Uh, we've got Andrew Martin-Smith and John Sokol today for the uh, for the over drinks um, version of the Lexical Tones podcast. How's it going, guys? It's going great. It's going really well, yeah. What are you drinking this evening slash morning? <laughs> well, uh, this evening I, I'm currently going with tea. I'm going with tea this evening. What what kind of tea is it? Oh, it is it is kava tea because we're in in need of stress and relaxation. <laughs> okay, John, what do you got going on? A red wine. Um, the label and type. I have forgotten. <laughs> also, okay, also enough. good for relaxation. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, uh, it, it fit the bill and, and the pricing. So, <laughs> uh, the, this morning I've got a um, uh, oolong tea going on. Ooh. I I was I was considering bl- bringing a flask, but you know, nine thirty. <laughs> 9.30 in the morning is tough to uh, recover from. Sure. Uh, that's, it's, so it's not that it's socially frowned upon. It's just you're looking to the future. <laughs> uh, yeah, a little bit of... Definitely, <laughs> it's not both. It's Well, it, no, it's some of both, but definitely not neither. Yeah, gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to add an edit. Okay. I remembered this is Ravenswood uh, Zinfandel. So, anyone can can I trademark over this? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not promoting it. I'm just acknowledging it. Right, it's, a, it's product placement. I think, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, if we can get them to sponsor us to sponsor right, us, then right. why not? Right? Hell, hell yeah. <laughs> so today we're going to be talking about a piece that was, I believe, was was your pick, Andrew. Is that right? Yeah, I think it. I think it was. I coerced everyone into this. I think. Yeah. So why don't you kind of um, tell us tell us a little bit about it? Um, so it was uh, it was actually a piece. Uh, the composer is uh, Georges Epergis, and Epergis is someone who is uh, pretty pretty familiar, uh, at least to me. And I think John, you had mentioned you were familiar with uh, with some of his works as well. Yeah, um, but this particular piece, I wasn't familiar with, so I wanted to kind of uh, break into it a little bit. And uh, so I think we're going to be talking about um, his piece Crosswind, which was from the late 90s, I think 1997. Yeah. And this and this composer, I had um, I had absolutely well, I'd never heard of him. So, I mean, maybe I'd heard of him at some point, but I definitely hadn't listened to his music. So this was brand new for me. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, John, was this? This Did piece you know new. of this piece? Yeah, I had heard of Epergis before. Was it from uh, Amanda, or yeah, was it right. even before that? No, no, Amanda was the um, the person who introduced me to some of his music. Um, so uh, Amanda DeBoer Bartlett once again is the catalyst for. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's she's right. she's a her. reoccurring <laughs> theme in this podcast. <laughs> I, I think so. I think so. Probably means we should have her on at some point. I think that would be delightful. So um, you you chose this piece because you had never heard it before. Um, so what are what were your impressions of Apergis, um just in general from the pieces that you knew of him and um, the his you know what you had learned about him before. Uh, well, I'll take this question first then and, and say, um, the pieces of his that I was most familiar with, um, were his vocal music and specifically his, uh, recitations. And, um, I had known that his music is primarily theatrical in a lot of ways, very expressive, um, and, and utilizing this, element of uh, the human voice and the human expression to really convey 
his uh, musical ideas. Um, and I had known that he wasn't very big uh, in terms of his orchestral output. Um, it's, it's mostly theatrical interspersed with chamber music. And so I, I was interested in taking a look at one of his chamber pieces and see how much of the theatrical maybe was uh, permeating even the chamber music without voice, so to speak. And John, what did you, what were you, what were your impressions of him? I, uh, similarly to Andrew, I was really only familiar with um, specific recitations. Um, and I, I've used that piece as a teaching tool and I, I exposed some of my uh, students to that work. Uh, so I found it very important. And the thing that struck me when I looked at the score was um, a mode of efficient notation for this kind of maximum output um, into the ways that Andrew's talking about in the theatrics and, uh, and the expressive. Uh, so yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't really heard anything outside of that. Uh, Crosswinds is definitely, um, I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute here. Uh, you know, it's similar in some of these ways, but different in others. And, and I guess while, while I'm talking, Andrew, I want to, I want to bring up that, um, you had posted a couple photos on Facebook a few hours ago in preparation for this. Um, <laughs> yes, I did. Is, is, is the, yeah, the graphic... Can we talk about no. those photos? <laughs> uh, uh, sure. Nothing, nothing inappropriate. I assure our listeners. Um, the, uh, but yeah, I think, it, you the... know, it would be worth, it would be worth them to, you know, just go back and check it out to see if there was anything appropriate. Yeah, yeah, it's true, right? Uh, I'm I'm baiting them. This is my version of clickbaiting in an in an audio <laughs> environment. <laughs> you won't um, believe what you'll see. <laughs> uh, my my wife doesn't hear these podcasts, right? Oh wait. <laughs> um, uh, and I'm not drinking wine. Okay, so as as we think about the images that I put on Facebook, I had three of them, I think. One of them was uh, an audio waveform file of Crosswinds uh, from Audacity. I think I just took a screen capture of that. And then there was a picture of Epergeese. And then the third one, which is probably the one that is uh, more to the point, was um, an 11 by 17 graphic representation of my first time listening to the piece. Uh, so I, I literally sat down. Um, obviously, I, didn't, I don't have access to a score for this piece, although I think I'd love to see it. Um, but I listened to a performance of it. Uh, actually, I think it was the, uh, the U.S. premiere in February of 2014, I think, that Anubis gave with Nadia Sirota. Um, and I listened to that recording um, and and basically just free associative drawing of, of my interpretation of that piece from beginning to end. Nice. It's very curious to me because uh, when you posted that, I thought to myself, oh, hey, maybe I should prepare too. Um, <laughs> I know. I, I, I too felt kind of like a slacker. And I didn't know that that wasn't the score. <laughs> it it uh, it wasn't meant to spur you on. Oh, that's interesting, John. You thought it was the score. I well, I didn't know whether it was or wasn't, and I took it to be the score. So when I listened to it, I was thinking, "Oh, listen to all these gestures that are happening." I mean, it's, it's pretty. Um, you know, I could see the connection between the graphic drawing and and what I was hearing, and I thought, "Well, if it is the score." They're really reading well into it. You know, they're they're, they're <laughs> communicating really well as an ensemble. Um, if, damn, if you'll these guys allow are me, I, I will I will take that as a huge compliment, John, uh, as to my artistic uh, prowess. Oh, I love this. I love this. I give assignments like this out to students. Uh, so, oh, absolutely, I was super happy yeah. to see it. Um, and I even tested a few different recordings out on YouTube just to see, you know, if anyone's interpretation might be different. Should this be the score? Mm. And then they turned out to be pretty similar. <laughs> so I thought, well, maybe it's notated after all. <laughs> F funny that, yeah. yeah. Um, but no, I find this type of procedure, and I, and I think John and, and uh, I don't know, Rob, do you have your students do any of these kind of, of free associative drawings or anything like that as they're listening to something? 
I've had them do graphic um, graphic representations before, mostly with electronic mm. music. But but yeah, it's it, it's a big part of um, the an- analytical process to for like uh, analytical listening process. But also, I mean, I I use it in the reverse method for pre composition a lot. Yes. Mm. Yes. Um, I find that it really does. Um, I I guess open open a path maybe into an unfamiliar piece um, because you're you're at least one would hope you're familiar with your own kind of hand and penmanship and and how you kind of interpret certain types of shapes and gestures and so um, I actually I'm I'm continually surprised even though I probably shouldn't be at this point but I'm continually surprised at how well I'm able to remember certain types of things that happen orally in the piece just by looking at my manuscribble uh, mm-hmm. as a as I as I translate the shapes uh, and I thought I thought it was uh, an interesting way to kind of try and connect into Apergis music too, because well, his parents are uh, uh, visual artists, plastic artists, right? I think his father was a sculptor, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, and his mother was a painter, I think. So this this notion of John mentioning the gestures to be so strong and and maybe reflective of a, a kind of plastic art form, it just it was an interesting way for me to try and connect with the music on that level. At least in Andrew's interpretation of this, you can see um, relationships and development and these ideas that are that that we think of musically, uh, but but here on the paper are repeated in different guises and forms, and, and it's all very clear. So um, that's fascinating to look at. That's all. That would be an interesting kind of social experiment to do a concert where. You know, you along with the program, you also hand out, you know, several blank sheets of paper and some sort of, you know, pencils or pens or crayons or whatever, and just tell the audience, like, be engaged, you know, Mm. as you're listening, try to draw the thing that you are hearing. And I wonder, I just wonder if that would make for maybe a better. Well, not necessarily better. I mean, some people might be into it. Some people might not be. But at least you would know if they are committing to this process that they are actually listening. There is a degree of active engagement, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or you would just get people who are just going to like color (laughs) and not pay attention at all. Hey, but who doesn't love to color? I, I mean, I have right. a feeling like this. I have a feeling like this has been done uh, several times before, but maybe for a younger audience. I mean, I, yeah. I think uh, if I remember correctly, my DMA colleagues would go into um, uh, elementary school settings and and give concerts of new music. And of course, we all know anecdotally that there, there's never a more receptive audience to new music than young children. Um, but they would also encourage them to to draw and be active in these ways mm-hmm. to, to come up there with their representations of the abstract sound worlds they're hearing. And uh, and from what I gathered, the kids really loved it. And I, I think if it hasn't been done with adult audiences, I mean, look at the prevalence of adult coloring books, um, in the 21st century here. Uh, I, I think it definitely should be an avenue that's explored. Right. Yeah. I've already wrote it down. I want to try this. Now we're going to listen to a short excerpt from Crosswind by George Apergis. This is the Anubis Saxophone Quartet and Nadia Sarota on viola. <laughs> Thank you. 
So when I was, you know, when I was listening to this, um, the first couple, the first couple listens were difficult and I wrote down a bunch of things, um, that were mostly negative. (laughs) 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 And then this, this last time I listened to it right before we got on, um, the call, I wonder, I wonder if I had just been listening to it as I would listen, like, I wonder if, if my problem was I was trying to receive it as I receive music. Mm. You know what I mean? Like if I try to receive it as I receive art, then I think it makes a little bit more sense to me. So I, to, to piggyback off that a little bit, um, since Epergis does have a bit of a, um, electronic music background sort of in that he he uh, studied musique concrète with uh, Schaeffer and Pierre Henry and um uh if you treat it as electroacoustic music do you think there's a window in that way mm, that's not really um you n- I tried <laughs> sorry <laughs> I'm just I'm just being honest here um the one I, I thought the one thing that kind of hooked me a little bit was I, I, I kind of get what you're saying, um, because, you know, you have the saxophone, um, the saxophone lines kind of, I don't know, maybe three minutes, four minutes in or something like that. And mm. they're I, the, the word I wrote down for them was just squiggly. You know, they're kind of squiggly little melodic lines. And then when yeah. it goes to purely voices towards the end apart from the screaming i thought that the transformation of those squiggly lines into the voice was actually quite interesting but Mm -hmm. you know that's that's like a minute out of the piece that i felt okay about (laughs) yeah and and it's about 13 ish minutes long right yeah yeah getting getting back to the kind of um the whole like receiving it as art um yes i was wondering because the i i've got to tell you the the part where the saxophones remove the reed mouthpiece and put in the brass mouthpiece did not work for me at all um the it it really for, i mean first of all there there's the thing about you know the performance the performance practice of mm-hmm. or not the performance practice but the the performance issue of everyone removing a mouthpiece while the violist is playing okay first True. that's just that's just visually distracting and it makes me instantly not care about what the violist is doing in that instance because all i'm doing is paying attention to what the saxophones are doing visually oh uh, the spectacle right the spectacle of it all yeah so i mean it was it was actually really surprising to me that since he is so uh he, he is so in the theater world that 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 like motion or that visual element wasn't composed or it didn't seem like it was composed into the piece. I mean, at the very beginning, it seems like the Barry is the one that puts in his, uh, the, the brass mouthpiece first. So like it's kind of hidden in a way. Yes, but I believe towards so. the, yeah. Towards the, the middle and end of the piece, you know, you're going back and forth and it's just like, there's, it's, it's kind of unceremonious, you know? Hmm. Um, I really, I really like the word you use there, un, unceremonious. Um, mm-hmm. I had read somewhere, and maybe this is like the liner notes of the the uh, original recording uh, that uh, Zasox had uh, put out there, uh, which I'm totally blanking on the the name and the date. That's unfortunate. Um, but that. Uh, I think those liner notes talk about this this thing, which I found might be problematic as I was looking at the instrumentation. I mean, we have a saxophone quartet and a viola, 
right? Yeah, exactly. We have this, and and I'm and I'm 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 reading this, and it's part of the reason why I picked the piece is I'm reading this, going, how is this going to work, and what are the what is this about? And there was a, a bit in the liner notes, I think, about this this animalistic kind of um, uh, competition, or or I, I guess if you if you boil it down to, there's like a pack of of wolves or this pack of creatures, this saxophone quartet, which is uh, you know uh, ambushing this this poor defenseless viola, right? And it's it's this it's this relationship between the other, the viola and the saxophone quartet. There's a viola joke in here somewhere, I think. I just can't. <laughs> well, I mean, all violas are poor and defenseless, right? <laughs> um, but, you know, the the idea that uh, it's... It, uh, when you talk about the saxophonists removing their mouthpieces, they're all kind of in in the in several areas. They're doing it simultaneously because obviously the Barry has to you know put his back his or hers back on and take it off uh, and repeatedly through this process. And then all of them are are basically doing it at one point in time again against the viola. And uh, to me, the fact that it is distracting is in a way composed into the piece, regardless of whether or not it's shall we say, intentionally composed, like specifically telling them to do it in a certain way. Um, uh, and I'm not exactly sure, since I didn't have an opportunity to see the score, how much information is written in, because I do know that um, when Zasax performed this, I think at the premiere, the saxophone quartet surrounded the violist. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. Yeah. All the other and videos, so I don't, uh, they had a different setup. You know, kind of the- yeah, and I, and I think I mean the setup that that Anubis used uh, with Nadia Sirota, I think is very is is apt because of the you know the f holes and and uh, the viola sound can project into the hall mm-hmm. a little easier maybe than being surrounded by the saxophones, but it does definitely give a different perception of the piece I think, um, and so I'm not exactly sure if that's literally specified or if it was just something that the premiering ensemble thought hey this kind of goes with the concept of the piece. John, what do you think? It's strange for me to think that 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 maybe he wouldn't, you know, have written it in because it's mm. it's such a visual element, and distracting though it is, Rob, I agree with you completely. It's uh, it's definitely going to be noticed, um, which seems intentional. But yeah. but it also and... it makes sense to me to hear this as Andrew was saying um, through somewhat electronic ears and. Um, if I, if I can infer anything that maybe Ebergeese is, is, is trying to exhaust all the sonic possibilities of this ensemble, which is strange enough to begin with, but he's got this sax quartet and, you know, you have an idea of what a sax quartet may sound like and then what it may sound like with all of our um, possibly cliche saxophone events that have been discovered over the last four or five decades. So, so what else, what else is there? And how can that relate to the overall uh, ethic of the piece? Here's another short excerpt from Crosswind by George Apergis. Again, we're listening to Anubis Saxophone Quartet and Nadia Sirota. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
I get the whole trying to exhaust the um the sonic possibilities, but just because there are sonic possibilities doesn't mean they should be used. You know, like another, another thing I tell my students. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because because the saxophone with a brass mouthpiece really just sounds like well, it sounds like a couple things. It's either a duck <laughs> being stepped on <laughs> or it's it sounds like a bunch of fifth graders playing trombones. Because I mean, let's face it, these are reed these are reed players. They're they're not they're not adept at buzzing into a into a mouthpiece, you know? Mm, sure. So it, it that that was just a big problem for me that like the sound didn't really do anything for me. It just was. It wasn't. It wasn't attractive. It wasn't like gritty. It was. It was just kind of like flabby, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know the um, the crosswind idea, and maybe maybe I'm reading too much into this, or maybe I'm not reading enough into this. Is is the idea that we have uh, single reed wind players that play through the instrument a particular way, and then crossing over into this brass ish world, which the saxophone sort of exists between anyway. Um, I, I'm wondering if that's if that's in the concept of the piece somewhere, since the title is this this crosswind. Um, I haven't probably done as much research as I could, but you know, and no one really does when they hear a piece of music for the first time. Anyway, it's a surprise during a premiere performance, even uh, even if there are program notes, because barely anyone reads them anyway, um, right? So uh, the the idea did cross my mind, though, that this is is this the wind that is getting crossed? Um, and I don't know if that's something that either of you thought about too. Hmm. It's come to that's mind since you mentioned that. Uh that performance you saw where the viola was kind of in the middle, that would take a new mm. spin on how the violist is kind of the uh, recipient of, of those wings in a way. Oh. Oh. Almost, almost in the As crosshairs. In... Right, yeah. exactly. Huh. But I wouldn't have thought huh. that if you hadn't said anything because all the other videos I had seen, they were in a line or a semicircle or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's fascinating. Um, I Yeah, I, I kind of... I don't I don't necessarily know how I feel about the piece. Uh, uh, I have certain reactions to moments of it. And and when I was I think part of the reason why I wanted to do an abstract drawing was to see if I could feel the ending. I don't I don't know if that makes sense. Uh, If if the ending uh, were prepared in any kind of way where I felt like we had come to kind of uh, some kind of trajectory, some important moment, uh, or that I could tell the piece was ending. And and to be honest, uh, listening to it four times, one of which drawing through it, I couldn't really predict when it was going to stop, um, if that makes sense. I don't know if either of you had that same reaction. Yeah, yeah, me too. Kind of, I was, I was kind of just looking at the play bar and, you know, seeing... <laughs> seeing how long i had left and uh, i you know looking at the score or it, uh if i had the opportunity to look at the score i was kind of wondering was the ending a callback to the beginning material but like kind of flipped on its head or something hmm according to andrew's graphics there seems to be some similarity <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> the the, the, I mean, the I, new I, score I, for the piece. That, that's right. <laughs> Our only reference point <laughs> besides the piece itself. No, I thought the opening was compelling enough. But uh Yeah, I thought the opening was good. I you know, I'll I'll be honest, the first about five minutes I kinda dug. For me, this kind of writing where you have these short micro gestures, these bursts of excitement and energy and that are that are punctuated or delineated by space or or quote unquote silence, right? Um, they that that type of structuring tends to work for me if that happens at the beginning and if this is not a prolonged experience. And, and I feel like there's a lot of arrested motion 
in the composition. And, and maybe that's just uh, an error on my part in terms of perception, but I feel like this is a series of short little encounters between the saxophones and the viola through various guises that never... I don't want to say they don't tell a complete picture because maybe they do and I have to listen to it 20 more times. But in the in the four listenings that I've had, I feel like they don't give me they don't really give me the full trajectory. There's obviously shape here. There's obviously timbral change. There's obviously dynamic nuance. There's lots of things changing over time, but I don't feel the shape. Mm -hmm. I intellectually understand and hear it, if that makes sense. Sure, sure. Yeah. I I had the exact same um kind of feeling towards this with with how fractured um with how fractured temporally it is. Um and I as I was listening to it I kind of got I I kind of came up with this analogy for this feeling because it's like you it's like you're always breathing in but never fully expelling your breath out. So huh. you're, you know, you're kind of always like, you know, doing this, you know, taking in these sh short breaths, but never really letting anything ever go out completely, you know? So you, you're, hmm. you're like, I, and I mean, they, I, I think I, I was just remembering this from, um, you know, from maybe a woodwind methods class all the way back at BG <sighs> You know, where they tell you, like, you can't do that. You have to, like, get all the air out at some point. You can't have that back pressure or, or something like right, that. I right. can't remember. I can't remember which class. But, but that's the feeling it gave me, that there was all this kind of stored up pressure that never, that could never come out. And, like, it gives you, it, give, it gave me at least, it gave me kind of an uneasy feeling about the piece. And if that was his intention, then he absolutely succeeded. But it doesn't mean I should like it. You know? It, it, this, is, this is true, yeah. Um, Ears can hyperventilate too. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Exactly. No, it's very true. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, intention's always a dangerous thing to talk about, but I feel like... I feel like there is supposed to be a level of discomfort with this piece. Right. Perhaps. I mean, I mean, just, just based on the sounds being utilized and, and the, the manner of execution, it seems like this is supposed to be uncomfortable encounters. Um, and so I can, I can certainly get that. And it's, it's, it's one of the, it's the darndest thing because with something that does, with something that does change in these ways, you know, dynamically there is growth, timbrally there's growth. We've talked about the different ways the saxophonists play, but also the fact that you know the the instrumentalists actually start speaking in this kind of gibberish language, right? With some mm -hmm. with some, I think French utterances that are almost audible. Um, I, I, you know, the, obviously there is a lot of growth and, and trajectory taking place here. And it's just funny that you don't really get a chance to feel that because of these, these moments of hyperventilation. Right. Yeah. And it would, I think it would be something if, you know, the, the duration of those moments somehow changed over the course of the piece. And I mean, it does. There, there are sections that are, you know, a little bit longer than others, but, but you're talking it, drastic change. Yeah. It kind of averages out. Yeah. And, and we're kind of left with this, you know, I keep, I keep going back to visual, um, to, to visual ways to try to talk about this piece. It seems like th this piece kind of seems to me like a, a sculpture that it's a lot of the same things and a lot of those things and just an all over technique, hmm. you know? So you have a lot of, and the, you know, if this were a, a piece that, you know, you could put up on a wall or hang from the ceiling or, you know, put down on the floor or something like that. And you could just see all of it at once and you direct, you direct your experience like you would in an installation or a sculpture or something like that, I think it would be a bit more interesting for me. But because hmm. there's, you know, we are stuck in time, you know, we're we're slaves to to time. 
it doesn't really have that same effect to me as does the, you know, um, as does something that doesn't have a temporal aspect to it, like a sculpture or an installation. And, you, you know, you said there is this transformation over, like, over time, but, I don't know, something just doesn't quite work for me. I wonder if that would translate, too, into the um, timelessness of visual art, too. Uh, with some of the things that we've, we've mentioned concern with, uh, the visually distracting moments, um, you know, I'm imagining seeing it all on the walls, like you say, Rob, and then just being so distracted by this one thing that I can't appreciate the rest of the piece, even though I have the time to look at it. Mm. Right. Hmm. But of course, we would be able to tear ourselves away. Yeah, something that can, there was something you know. that I was also I'm I'm sorry, guys, I'm in a big like visual art um period right now because i'm preparing well i mean i i think it makes sense too given the given his background and that his parents were both visual artists and i'm i'm pretty sure with that kind of upbringing uh one one has a moment of do i do i go into the visual arts or do i become a musician (laughs) right so i'm I'm assuming there's a lot of influence and that's probably why he's gravitating toward the theatrical where there's a lot of visual components so i think i think you're talking in the right vein um uh, when you're talking about visuals well, and I and I'm I'm just recognize like I'm just pointing out my own particular bias right now because I'm preparing to teach a class that is half music and half visual art. So nice. I'm kind of like I'm kind of in that world right now and trying to, and thinking like that and being you know engaging with the with pieces, um, music or visual art uh, on a daily basis. So that that might be my own kind of uh, bias when listening to this piece but something about this kind of remind me reminded me of the um of the artist uh philip Gust- uh, Gustin. um because uh he you know he famously just <laughs> all ca- all cards on the table i'm teaching a class about the new york school so you know cage okay. feldman and then yeah. Pollock, Gust- Gustin, all all those artists um and he, you know, Gustin and Feldman were were really great friends. And, you know, you look at some of Gustin's early work and it's very abstract. You know, it's all about the paint on the canvas. You know, no uh, uh, no figuration or no representation whatsoever. And then you look at his older, uh, the work in his, the, later in his life. And it's, I think I saw someone describe it as like the aesthetics of the bad like bad painting you know <laughs> because because all of his later work re- truly looks like i mean the 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 representation looks like it was done by a 5 year old but yeah you know the 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 technique obviously has an entire lifetime of development but you mm-hmm. if you don't pay attention to that you're just looking at the outward you know, if if you just glance at it, then you're you would assume like, oh yeah, like my my son or my son or daughter did that in their art class. So there was something that kind of connected to this piece with me, and I think it was particularly the um the the use of the brass mouthpieces on the saxophone. Like, is this an aesthetics of the bad? Like, is he intentionally making? the instruments i mean this is just me but is he intentionally making the instruments sound bad you you know that's a really good thought i think yeah i had to pull this up i'm looking at a ton of images right now i see exactly what you're saying right yeah and uh it's hard not to argue with evidence in front of you It's a talking point, at least. <laughs> oh, oh, sure. Uh, and you know, I think um, I, I, it's one of those. It's one of those things where, as composers, I think first of all, uh, no one has ever found a perfect piece of music and and crafted a pers- perfect piece of music. At least from my my perspective, I don't think it exists. Uh, I think it's a great ideal to shoot for. 
Um, and I think, you know, everybody gets closer or further away from that mark, depending upon who they are and how much technique they have. Um, but, uh, very often in this piece, I find myself, um, captivated by a particular sound or, or thinking to myself, oh, that gesture right there, the way that that saxophone line is carried over by the viola that then goes up to a harmonic gliss and it just seems to, to float in the air. Um, I, I, I found myself, you know, making catalogs of my little squiggles here and, and, and notating, annotating what, what exactly is going on here timbrely um, so that, of course, I can I can try and pull that off in a different type of musical environment where maybe I'm more aesthetically satisfied about the whole. But there are some individual moments here where I was um, pretty blown away. One more excerpt from Crosswind by Georges Apergis. Last time, Anubis Saxophone Quartet and Nadia Sorota. Yeah, there's serious technique here. We don't question that, I don't think. Um, but whether they link up into a satisfying trajectory, if that's something that's important to you um, as a listener or uh, or not, you know, all these other unanswered questions, I guess. It's it's very it's very funny that musicians are are thinking about this idea of whether or not we're concerned with having a trajectory, considering that our art does exist in time. Mm-hmm. And I and I under I mean I understand uh, the arguments and the um, the situations where one deals with you know uh, mobile form or or things that aren't necessarily consistent as a trajectory from performance to performance. Um, but I think a lot of those successful pieces too exist in, are, are put together in such a way where one can hear a trajectory from beginning to end, a, a sense of continuity um, uh, that evolves in some kind of perceptible way. And I, I find it I, I, funny, maybe not the right word, odd uh, maybe is the right word, that uh, someone engaged in a temporal art form would consider breaking that as as a as a piece of music uh, per se to to give you something that can't really be experienced as a trajectory mm. and again maybe that's maybe that is wholly sub- subjective and maybe you can argue that uh, well since everything exists in time everything has a trajectory but I think there are more satisfying trajectories <laughs> than others there are you know other composers who are non-linear um, and yeah. take a great deal of pride and, and do it well in that but. Uh... Yeah, just like you were saying at the end there. I mean, perhaps it's it's only got a, a trajectory simply by existing, right. by beginning and ending uh, in, in some kind of point of time. Um, but I don't know. I, as, as I'm hearing this and thinking of this, my again, my mind wanders just slightly to um, the band Deerhoof. And in 2000, oh, yeah. Mm, yeah. God, what time? 2010, I think, when they had Deerhoof versus Evil. Um, <laughs> was released and and all of these really short sketch-like songs were on the record and it was totally unlike things they had done before and I, you know i was talking with a colleague at the time and we we're like well this is 
strange. Is this it? It doesn't even sound finished. But it works from hmm. top to bottom, you know, because you can have your, your fulfilling album sound. All the songs flow into one another. There's this concept, or if not, you know, you still get a good feel from the whole. But, hmm. but I'm not saying this had it, but, but it, it worked in such a way. And uh, I don't know, my, I'm making some kind of connection there, even if it's not being clearly spoken right now. Hmm. I mean, I I think I had a very similar reaction to you, Andrew, where the I enjoyed a lot of the moments, but I couldn't mm-hmm. string those moments together. Hmm. You know, to make to like it, they were. If you just take them as moments, then they're the, then a lot of them I really like. But yeah, the the kind of overall. Um, or, or like you say, the trajectory just didn't. If there is a trajectory, that's that's the kind of the thing I'm I'm grappling with with this piece. Is exactly. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. Am am I doing my work as the listener correctly? You know, like am I coming at this with a with a certain bias that I shouldn't? Am I listening to it in the in the right way? Am I engaging with the aesthetics in the correct way? And this is something that you know like people people don't do enough of when they're when they're listening is telling some of my students about this that if you don't like a piece then maybe you should look at yourself first you know absolutely right and 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 consider like did i do did i do my job as a listener did i did i try to uh, take every avenue into this that I have available to me based on what my experience of, experiences have been. And at the end of the day, if you if you really self-assess and you figure out that, yeah, I did the work, then okay, then you just don't like it. But like people people just jump to that, nope, don't like it, shutting the mm-hmm. door. Too, yeah. A little too fast for me. So I'm I'm like really I'm I'm struggling as a listener and I'm trying to get to that place where I can Maybe if I don't, if even if I don't like it, I can at least understand it. Sure, you know. Right. So the so these avenues from from the visual world into this piece are, I think, helping me at least understand it a little bit more. No, I, I think that makes sense, and it's it's fun that you uh, you talk to your students about really meeting the piece halfway and and trying to find these modes of or or windows of perception into the piece uh, to at least appreciate it if not like it but i i told my students recently um that uh, I, I could honestly care less as to whether or not they like or hate something. You could, you, we all, this is part of the human condition. Yeah. All of us like or don't like stuff. That is the most uninteresting thing about <laughs> your experience yes. with a piece of art, in, yes. in my opinion. It is, it is not about whether or not you liked it or, or didn't like it. It's about how you engage with it in that moment and the different modes of operation of you trying to, to think about it. But not not maybe in the even intellectual sense of I'm I'm consciously aware of all the pieces and parts, but in just allowing yourself to experiencing it to experience it from a different vantage point, um, that gives you at least a way of trying to 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 come to terms with it. I suppose if you don't like it, and, or if you do like it, <laughs> right? I always challenge my students to. To, to qualify why they do or don't like something. And we had an interesting conversation last week in the introduction to composition class. I've got um, 14 or 15 students. Only two of them are majors, um, but, but they're freshmen. So as, as we're working on pieces, we listen to rep and write exercises for instruments, and uh, they're often sight-read. So I pose after the reading of a piece, you know, what did you think? What did you hear? What's your reaction? And a lot of the students admitted what are we supposed to be listening for? Uh, mm-hmm. So we delved into an interesting conversation about, you know, potential objective things, which, you know, can be tricky in composition. But then we listened to all the kind of subjective things that appeals to each student individually. And that, that evolved into some really interesting uh, discussions uh, throughout the class. So they may or may nice. not have a better handhold on it. We'll find out, I guess, Tuesday. Um, but uh, <laughs> But... 
they're growing, and that's great. And and everyone's aesthetic is different. And the, the more you listen, and the more you write, and the more you expose yourself to, the more that aesthetic uh, becomes refined. So it does. I I agree with what you're saying that uh, if you if you can come to terms with something or um, find yourself appreciating certain moments of a piece that overall you don't generally prefer or didn't engage with. Uh, there, there is, I think, undeniably something in every piece uh, we listen to that can be taken away in a positive light. Oh, absolutely. Even if that positive light, even if that thing of value is, well, that's not what I'm doing next time, right? <laughs> right, right, exactly. Or, oh, no. I'm going to do it better than that next time. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was t- the the one like big takeaway from from that conversation that I was having with my students was like if you feel nothing that's when that's when you really need to do some self-examination. You know, mm-hmm. you can't you can't be listening or viewing or engaging with art and feel nothing. It's just impossible. It 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 is it's the signal that you're not engaging. Uh-huh. So yeah yeah absolutely i i I love that like i i really don't care if you like if you like it or not (laughs) i've said that i've said that to my kids so many times like definitely okay you like it you hate it i i don't care i really really don't because it it truly is the most uninteresting statement one can make (laughs) right yes obviously you have an opinion (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I may have to borrow those words this week. I've said it in you know so many words prior, but uh, you know, to drive a point home, you don't need to impress me. I didn't write the piece, and I'm not going to grade you for liking it or not liking it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah totally. I do want to see you grow as a critical listener mm-hmm. and thinker. That's all. Yeah, and and here, um, my my some of my kids are just so timid. Um, for whatever reason, I'm I'm not really sure, but you know, I had I had one in a I th- oh, what were we listening to? I think we were we might have been listening to a Jonty Harrison piece or something in in electronic music, and I could tell on the face of one of my students she really like didn't like it, and um, I just kind of prodded her. I was like, "Come on, just just say it. It's okay. Like you're not gonna offend me." And you're not, and your opinion of this isn't going to make my enjoyment of the piece any less. So go ahead, say what you want to say. You know. Yeah, I think I don't. I don't know. This could be related to a cultural thing in a lot of ways, but I think, like we were talking before, it's a global issue that we're experiencing. The idea that um, uh, we don't we don't like being wrong as human beings. Um, we don't like right. being embarrassed. And, and we, we have this sneaking suspicion that when someone asks us a question, there is an, uh, not an ulterior motive, but there is a desired outcome in the mind of the, the person who's asking the question, kind of like a Socratic method, sort of, you know, where I'm guiding you down, there's an obvious answer, what just you... give me the obvious answer. And sometimes, right. especially when we're talking about subjective things, the answers aren't obvious and they're not supposed to be right or wrong. And so people get very uncomfortable, I think, with offering their opinion. I see a lot of, you know, blank stares and I'm trying to facilitate things by saying, I don't have an answer I'm looking for, you know, I'm just right. trying to initiate a discussion or, or these kind of things. But you're right, you know, that don't prod my mind. You know, I don't have all the answers either. And for the most part, I'm pretty upfront about that. It's like, what do you think about this? I've heard this piece a hundred times. I've got my own opinions. What do you think? Mm-hmm. The only wrong answer is no answer. Bingo. <laughs> All right. Well, anything else about this? <laughs> I think we've I think we've mined this this piece for. I mean, like I said, like I'm 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 not quite there with it yet, but. It's got something in there that I don't, I don't just want to leave yet. You know what yeah. I mean? Like I, I don't, no, I, I don't want to write that. it off just yet. Um, so it'll be, it'll this, be interesting. Like, sorry, I, there's something in there that appeals to you, Rob, um, and I, I think all of us. Does that encourage you to explore his other works to see if that is present in, in other pieces that maybe will you'll, you'll engage? a little more uh consistently with 
Yeah. So that's that's actually a question I was going to ask is, you know, for for me or for people listening that either didn't like this or really liked it, you know, what are some of what are some of his other titles that, you know, we could search out? Well, let's see. The the obvious one that uh, uh, John and I had already mentioned was the uh, recitations. And I think that was John. Was that from the late 70s? I think so. Um, yeah, I I, I want to say it was like seventy seven or seventy eight, um, and that's uh, that's a piece for solo voice. And there's a I think there's a lot of really fun theatrical things that happen in that particular piece, mm-hmm. um, which uh, maybe maybe is a little more accessible in certain ways. Um, Nineteen seventy eight. Whew, not bad. Okay, yeah, I'll I'll take it. Um, <laughs> nice job. He's. Uh, <laughs> um. Uh, from the 90s, I think there's also a, a Volte face of, uh, um, for solo viola. There's a lot of viola stuff I'm, that, I'm, that I'm suddenly remembering. <laughs> uh, I think there's a duet, too, from like the early 2000s for violin and viola, although the name escapes me right now. Uh, and, and like I said before, it's, he's got either uh, large, dramatic, like musical theater-ish uh, uh, works. Obviously, we're not talking Broadway here, but... Uh, uh, things with staging and, and operas um, interspersed with these really small solos, duos, trios, quartet kind of things. I don't know, John, do you have any other titles that you might uh, suggest? Recitations was the only thing other than Crosswind that I was familiar with before, um, mm. but, but I'm looking at a short list of some of his other works right now, um, so I, I have nothing to add to what you just said. Okay. Um, but but I am encouraged to investigate further. Yeah, I think that's I think that's part of the reason why I kind of like this uh, uh, this aspect of the lexical tones project. We'll see how it goes when everything is you know edited and and we start really hitting the ground with this. But uh, but the fact that I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but we all had colleagues in grad school where this would happen, right? Or you know we'd get together at a, a watering hole. Uh, of local color and discuss this really esoteric music and uh and i've i've in this moment i've found that i really miss that um yeah. and these discussions of of pieces that i uh didn't have a way into that maybe one of my colleagues did or that we were all sort of struggling with or that we all really appreciated and and couldn't get enough of and were interested to learn more about a particular composer and and a, and, a, and aesthetic um, which apparently is hard for me to say after tea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's nothing better than an argument about avant-garde music at a bar. <laughs> <laughs> Without having the buffer of university colleagues or, or even faculty colleagues, you know, where do we have these conversations anymore? Who's inspiring who? Yeah. You know, where, where do the people who are chosen to educate and inspire and facilitate. Uh, where do they get their inspiration and all that? Where there's exposure. Mm-hmm. So, so this has been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll do more of them then. Cool. <laughs> and that's where we'll get it. Beauty. Well, thanks, guys. Hey, thanks. Thank you, Rob. Yeah. Have a have a great rest of your day. And uh, John, good night to you, sir. Likewise to you. Happy day. Good evening, gentlemen. (laughs) Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.